My name is Lester Burnham. This is my neighborhood. This is my street. This is my life. I'm 42 years old. In less than a year, I'll be dead. Sam Mendes directed American Beauty to critical acclaim, box office success and five Academy Awards. But for me, its achievements do not match that of its fourth feature, Revolutionary Road. Adapted from Richard Yates's novel of the same name, it is almost in every way the superior work, offering a more penetrating look at America's suburban dreams. Whereas American Beauty, released in 1999, was set at the end of the 20th century, Revolutionary Road, published in 1961, takes place in the post-war years, a time that was ripe with optimism. So ripe it could only ever fall short of expectation. And with that shortfall comes tragedy. American Beauty reached for tragedy, but Alan Ball's layered script deftly disguised that tone, and thus softened its critique through its comedic streak. But for Revolutionary Road, Justin Haight's screenplay so sustains the abrasively tragic air that it is always going to be harder for audiences to stomach. While Yeats's novel is considered one of the finest in 20th century American literature, it never secured a wide readership. And so it should come as little surprise that the more faithful Mendes was to the novel, the less likely the film would connect with audiences. The only reason we moved out here was because I got pregnant. Then we had another child to prove the first one wasn't a mistake. I mean, how long does it go on? Frank, do you actually want another child? Well, do you? Come on, tell me. Tell me the truth, Frank. Remember that? We used to live by it. And you know what's so good about the truth? Everyone knows what it is, however long they've lived without it. No one forgets the truth, Frank. They just get better at lying. Revolutionary Road began life on February 3rd, 1926, the day Yeats was born in Yonkers, New York. Although not autobiographical, Yeats did draw on elements of his own life in order to depict the dissolving marriage of Frank and April Wheeler. Yeats was but three years old when his parents divorced, and his early childhood and adolescence provided for a peripatetic existence, regularly moving not just from one house to another, but across various states on America's east coast. Yeats gave Frank the same background. Likewise, just as Yeats enlisted in the US Army to serve in Europe, Frank is a veteran of World War II. Also, Frank works for Knox Business Machines, where he writes copy. Yates worked for the Remington Rand Corporation, where he did the same thing. And in order to chart the dissolution of the Wheeler marriage, Yates drew upon the breakup of his 11-year marriage to Sheila Bryant. Just like Frank and April, the Yateses had two children. April, you just said our daughter was a mistake. How do I know you didn't try to get rid of her, or, or Michael for that matter? No. How do I know you didn't no. try to flush our entire fucking family down no, the toilet? that's not true! Of course I didn't! But how do I know, April? Stop. Please, just stop, Frank. April, a normal woman, a normal sane mother, doesn't buy a piece of rubber tubing to give herself an abortion so she can live out some kind of a goddamn fantasy! Starring Leonardo DiCaprio and Kate Winslet, the film needed performances that would plumb the depths of two characters who almost pathologically argue each other out of the marriage. And while Hate's screenplay deftly juggles time frames to trace the lineage of those arguments, Mendes allows the film to argue with itself. 
Left in the hands of another director, this would suggest a lapse in concentration, that things have slipped out of tune. In American Beauty and Under Mendy's Direction, Kevin Spacey's modulation was for satire, while Annette Benning's setting was for farce. Which was fine, because both are comical. But Revolutionary Road is a drama, and it is the images, the designs and music that run against the current. Cinematographer Roger Deakins frames each scene so the affluence of middle-class suburbia disguises its emptiness. Similarly, Christy Zia's production design has everything just a tad too clean and tidy. The same goes for Albert Walski's costumes. Whiter than white, everything neatly ironed and pressed. Put them all together and you could be leafing through a summer edition of the American Home magazine. But just like the rhythms of the day, everything might be neatly measured out, but they don't balance out. While Frank takes the train to work, April takes the bins out of the bottom of the drive. As April tidies the house, Frank has to tidy the report for the Toledo office. And while April is having coffee with her neighbour Helen Givings, Frank is having martinis with the pool secretary Maureen Grube, getting her drunk and, to mark his 30th birthday, take her to a hotel room. Is Frank taking pleasure in betraying April? The movie doesn't suggest as much. Instead, portraying the event as so transactional Frank takes it as a testament to his masculinity. This is what the successful businessman does. Guess this wasn't what you had in mind when you went to work this morning, huh? No, it certainly wasn't. And all through the increasing disharmony, Deacons' camera keeps everything meticulously composed and impeccably lit, with Thomas Newman's score providing a placid yet pensive soundtrack. It is as if every department of production were in separate denial as to what is happening. You know, He's the first person who seemed to know what we were talking about. Yeah, that's true, isn't it? Maybe we're just as crazy as he is, huh? If being crazy means living life as if it matters, then I don't care if we're completely insane. Do you? No. Let's consider other things that are at odds. Frank and April Wheeler may be young and attractive, but they are hardly freewheeling. If anything, their marriage and sanities are careening into a ditch. Frank is not. Rather, he is evasive and self-deceiving. April does not carry the joys of spring, instead an air of autumnal sadness. Then you have the real estate agent, Helen Givings, played by Kathy Bates. Other than the house filled with a false promise, just what does Helen give the wheelers. She gives them the troubled company of her son John, delivered in a breakout performance by Michael Shannon. John is fresh out of a local sanatorium where he was subjected to electroshock therapy. A former maths teacher, he is clearly an unsettled personality, but at least he knows it. More than that, he sees right through and calls out Frank and April's dream of lighting out for Europe. In a phrase, John has their number. Then there are Frank and April's young neighbours, Shep and Millie Campbell, played by David Arbour and Catherine Han. As plain and as prepackaged as a can of soup, Shep Campbell appears to be completely domesticated, but really he is a hound on the lookout for extramarital activity. Millie, she's a grindstone, going round and round and round, mindlessly repeating the same actions in the heartfelt belief that they might somehow result in something worthwhile. And as for Zoe Kazan's Maureen Groob, with whom Frank has a grubby little fling. There you go. Can I 
Can I get you a drink or anything? Oh, no thanks, Maureen. Actually, it's uh, it's getting kind of late. I guess I, I guess I better be cutting out. Oh. oh, gee. That's right. Did you miss your train? That's all right. I'll, I'll catch the next one. Listen, you were swell. Take care now. Hmm? Revolutionary Road sounds like the Wheeler's address, but Yeats's novel wasn't only about the end of their marriage. It was about the death of America's revolutionary spirit. Yeats's argument was that somewhere along the way to America becoming a global power, its radical idealism had veered into a dead end. But other than the privilege, that really wasn't the case. While white middle-class America was approaching its zenith, that economic majority was not cognizant of the stirrings at the margins, within its minorities, its huddled masses, yearning to be free. The civil rights movement was beginning its long, and still incomplete, march to parity. It may not have happened in the Wheeler's neighbourhood, let alone their home state, but 1955 was the same year that Rosa Parks refused to give up her seat on the bus. Women's liberation was also on the move, but tragically, autonomy over her own body was not yet available to April, which is why she is so terribly alone. Also, 1955 was the height of the Joe McCarthy witch hunts, where the country came face to face with an ideology that claimed to be the embodiment of the American spirit, but in fact was a virus that threatened to eat it from within. Yeats either chose to ignore those events or simply assumed that the contemporary reader was breathing the same political fumes in which he was writing. But either way, when Mendes came to make the film in 2008, audiences were no longer contemporaries of those events. In other words, Revolutionary Road is prison cinema, where the past is viewed through a perspective that could either give a sharper view of history or hold up a mirror to the present. Perhaps it is just a coincidence, but a year before Revolutionary Road was released into theatres, this series hit television screens. Although Frank works in Midtown Manhattan, he never senses any of the excitement that is bubbling up on Madison Avenue. When Frank goes to work, Mendes and Deacons deliver a series of particularly beautiful, but also gruelling images of Frank disembarking from the train and then, along with the hordes of office workers, coming down the steps in Grand Central Station. Despite their numbers, Mendes ensures we get no impression of energy, vitality, positivity or opportunity. This is the grind. There is not one Don Draper, Pete Campbell, Peggy Olson, Joan Harris or Roger Sterling among them. Every woman wants choices. But in the end, none wants to be one of a hundred in a box. She's unique. She makes the choices and she's chosen him. She wants to tell the world he's mine. He belongs to me, not you. She marks her man with her lips. He is her possession. You've given every girl that wears your lipstick the gift of total ownership. When he is in Manhattan, Frank never goes beyond Midtown, and so neither sees nor hears the emergence of the Beat Generation. This might be a sly omission, betraying what Yates really thinks of Frank. Frank graduated from Columbia in the 1940s, the very time and place that Allen Ginsberg met Jack Kerouac, William S. Burroughs and Lucien Carr. 
Although it is never made clear what Frank studied at Columbia, we are encouraged to believe that he took some classes in philosophy. In the book, Yeats wrote Frank regarded himself as an intense nicotine-stained Jean-Paul Sartre of a man. But the way DiCaprio delivers his lines about Paris, you know straight away that Frank has nothing to back it up. You've been to Paris? I've never really been anywhere. Well, maybe I'll take you with me then, huh? I'm going back the first chance I get, I tell you. People are alive there, not like here. <laughs> Paris was the city Frank helped liberate, but now it's not Paris that Frank wants. It's the idea of Paris, the movable feast of Ernest Hemingway, the tender nights of F. Scott Fitzgerald. But now the idea of Paris is more T.S. Eliot's wasteland. As for April, by the time the film starts, her aspirations of being an actress, or at least to have the opportunity to pretend to be someone else, have already evaporated. In a local amateur production of Robert E. Sherwood's The Petrified Forest, which was set during the Great Depression, April plays Gabrielle Maple, who, just like April, dreams of getting away to France. Did I hear you say that you were a writer? Uh, yes, in a way. I've never known many writers. Well, please don't go. Do you want something else? No, I, I just wanted to talk to you. Won't you please sit down? All right. Well, I suppose you want to go into the movies. Not in your life. I want to go to Borg's. Where? Borg's in France. Oh. You might never guess it, but, but that's where I came from. Really? You're not French, are you? Partly. I was born in Borg's. Yet, despite the similarities, April's performance is a calamity. And when we see her in the dressing room taking off her stage makeup, it is as if she were wiping away the last traces of her dream. Which means she should be able to see her real self. But she doesn't. The only female friends she has are Millie and Helen, neither of whom would dream of associating with the likes of a Peggy Olsen or Joan Harris, the very women April should be seeking out. But no, Millie and Helen would describe Peggy and Joan as flighty, uppity or neurotic. April is so trapped in her beautiful white house, a white house that is at the very end of the street, she feels she has no option other than to attack herself. Hello? Millie? Everything all right? Well, no, I'm afraid I'm, I'm not feeling any better. That's really why I called. If it's not an inconvenience for you, this evening would be great. What? Oh, no. No. Not if they're outdoors playing. Don't call them in. Just give them each a kiss for me. And tell them I... Tell them... Oh, you know. All right. All right. Thank you, Millie. Bye. With its long-running format, Mad Men had more time and space than Revolutionary Road to draw in social issues and chart the titanic cultural shifts that were beginning to rumble across the continent. And if there is a flaw in Mendy's film, it is just that. Yeats wrote his novel from a fear that the revolutionary spirit had been closed off. But fear is neither resignation nor acceptance. Fear presupposes you hope for a specific future and the very fact that you have a vision of that future is a positive feeling. Positivism is a survival tool. 
a position that in the face of a threat can be used as an act of rebellion. Written in 1961, perhaps Yeats was too much in the thick of examining the small lives of small people at the end of the Eisenhower era to have been able to predict the future. But in 2008, Mendes had the luxury of looking at the past and the near half century that had elapsed in between. Ultimately, the film might have been aided from presenting at the edges of the frame and in the background, those things which Frank and April were not noticing. The stirrings of the movements, civil rights and women's liberation that were about to change America and thus help it reclaim its revolutionary spirit. (laughs) 